Exodus 17, verse 8 to 16. So let's hear God's word. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning, but whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. We thank God for his word. Uh, the dictionary defines hope as a feeling of expectation and desire for a particular thing to happen. We hope it won't rain when we want to go out for a walk. We hope we'll escape sickness and disease. We hope we'll have enough money to make ends meet. We hope we'll get the job or pass the exam or be successful at whatever it is we're doing. We hope it'll all turn out okay and that we'll be happy. Sometimes hope can seem elusive. It can seem to be in short supply. Sometimes our hopes are dashed when things don't turn out like we desire and we're forced to try to come to terms with that. In relation to hope, real hope, biblical hope, Romans 15, 4 says this, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So God wants to give us real hope through what was written in the past, through the scriptures that we've read this morning. He wants us, whatever our circumstances, to get to know him and to trust him and his word, to put our hope in him. Corrie ten Boom said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. So by faith, with our hand in his hand, we don't have to know the future. We can travel with confidence into the future as we look at these verses in Exodus briefly, may the Spirit of God work this hope in our hearts. First, we need to get our bearings in the book of Exodus. The Israelites have recently been delivered from abject slavery, from under the power of Pharaoh. They've been brought out of Egypt and they're now journeying towards the promised land. They've entered into a relationship of trust in the living God. In Exodus, God makes them some great and precious promises. He tells them that they'll be his people. You'll be my people, he says to them. That he, he tells them that he'll be their God. 
And he tells them that out of all the nations, they'll be his treasured possession. This is a picture of what's happened to you um, if you're a Christian. You realize that you couldn't save yourself from the captivity of, to, to sin and to death and to hell. You realize that you were a prisoner to these things. You couldn't set yourself free. You heard about the Savior, how his blood was shed at the cross to pay for your sin. And you looked to him in faith. You looked to Jesus in repentance and in faith. You trusted him as your Savior and you rejected any thought of being your own Savior and looked to him. You've been brought out of a slavery you didn't even realize you were under. If that's happened to you, if you're looking to Jesus as your Savior this morning, you've been brought out from under a slavery you didn't even realize you were under. You've entered into a new relationship with God. And in the process, though, you, you may not always fully realize it, you've become his treasured possession. All the promises of God are now yours in Christ. Every promise in his word. Victories in sight as you walk with him on the way to the promised land. But the problem is, like on a car journey with small children, we're not there yet and there are troubles along the way. Jesus warns us about this. He says to his followers, in this world you will have trouble. And sure enough, when God's redeemed people came out of Egypt, when they were set free by the blood of the lamb, they began to face difficulties, difficulties from outside themselves and difficulties from within. Their faith was weak. Temptation was strong. Despite all he had done for them, they struggled to believe that God was with them and that God was for them. They were discontented with God and with their circumstances. Again and again, God bore with them and provided for their needs. He caused their hearts to sing in chapter 15 as he overcame their enemies at the Red Sea. He made bitter water sweet in chapter 15, verse 22. He gave them meat to eat when they were hungry for it in chapter 16. And in chapter 17, he brought refreshing water from the rock. And finally, chapter 17, verse 7, they knew that the Lord was indeed among them. But no sooner does this happen than we come to verse 8 of chapter 17, and they're under attack again. Satan ambushes. He doesn't want us to trust and obey our Savior. He doesn't want Christians to bring glory to God, to live counter-culturally as children of light. He doesn't want us proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. We see the battle here in verse 8. Um, the enemy, the Amalekites, who were opposed to God and his people, came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. The New Living Translation translates verse 16, the final, the last verse in this little section, in this way. It says, they have raised their fist against the Lord's throne. So now the Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Amalekites hated the Israelites. 
because they felt that through Jacob, they'd stolen their birthright and their blessing. The Amalekites were bitter enemies of the people of God. And we see their aim in Psalm 83, verse 4. This is what they say about the, the people of God. They say, come, let us destroy them as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. So that was their aim when they came out here to attack the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy 25, Moses gives us some more information about that, this attack. He says, to, Moses says this to the people of Israel, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. So they, they cut off all who were lagging behind and they had no fear of God. So these Amalekites, um, they had no fear of God and they attacked the people of God. They attacked those who were lagging behind. Um, and that's a lesson for us here if we're a believer. We need to keep on going in the Christian life, not get sidetracked or looking for joy or, or satisfaction in some other direction. But we need to draw near to God and he's promised when we do, he'll draw near to us. Peter, the apostle, speaking from experience, tells us that our enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And he says that we're to resist him, standing firm in the faith. And we'll only stand firm as we read and as we meditate on the word of God. And as, depending upon the spirit of God, we put it into practice. When Paul, before he became a believer, was persecuting Christians, Jesus said that he was actually persecuting him. That's what the Amalekites were doing here. By attacking the people of God, they were attacking God. They were raising a fist against his throne. And behind it all, there was a spiritual battle raging. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In the life of the Christian, the battle doesn't only come from within, uh, from the flesh, from our hearts. It comes from the world and the devil too. It comes from the outside. Satan knows that the, the believer, the Christian is saved, forgiven, because of Jesus' sacrifice, and he can't do anything about that. But he will try to make the journey as difficult as possible. He's after the Christian, scheming and trying to pull us down into sin, to make us dishonor God, to entice us to, to give up trying to live for Jesus and for his glory. Remember what Jesus said to Peter, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. He says that to you and me as well if we're a Christian. Now, notice the, the timing of the attack here in Exodus 17. It was after, right after a time of great blessing. We're told in verse 8 that the attack came at Rephidim. And that was the place where God had brought water out of the rock um, to, to satisfy the thirst of his people. And the enemy often attacks at a time like this. He doesn't want the people of God rejoicing in their God. 
Um, so we need to be vigilant and be aware of his schemes. In response to this threat from the Amalekites, you see what Moses did in verse 9. He, he gives orders to Joshua, who was described in the book of Numbers as Moses' assistant from his youth. He tells Joshua to choose some men to go out and fight against the enemy. Christian discipleship requires that we put in effort. Romans 8.13, we must, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body. Ephesians 4, we must put off the old self. Ephesians 6, we must put on the full armour of God and take our stand against the devil. Colossians 3, we must put to death whatever belongs to our, un, to our earthly nature. So it's a battle. First, Corinthians, First Timothy 6 says, we must fight the good fight and endure hardship like a good soldier. And that's what Joshua and his men were doing in the valley, verses 9 and 10. It was a real battle and real effort was required Hand-to-hand combat, verse 13 there, talks about uh, the, the use of the sword. The name Joshua means the Lord is salvation. So there's a hint here. Although the fight raged in the valley, it was the Lord who would give the victory. Look at what was happening while the battle raged. Verse 10 Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill overlooking the battle. And Moses had said to Joshua, tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. This was the staff that earlier had struck the Nile in verse 5, bringing plagues, bringing judgment upon the Egyptians. It was the staff that struck the rock in verse 6, bringing blessing, bringing water for the people to drink, bringing blessing to the people of God. It was the staff that brought the sea back over the Egyptians, over the enemies of God's people. And it was the staff that divided the Red Sea so that the people of God could go safely through. R.C. Sproul said, this staff was a sign of God's power and presence. And so it would be lifted up before the people as a reminder that God would fight for them against their enemies. So this staff was a sign of God's power and presence. And it was going to be a reminder to the people that although they had to fight in the valley, that God would fight for them. Or the, the words of Warren Wearsby, since Moses held the staff of God in his hands, he was confessing total dependence on the authority and power of God. So although we fight the good fight, our dependence is on the, the power and authority of God. The Amalekites were attacking God's newly rescued people here, but God was about to intervene. And in the process, in these few verses, he would teach Moses and Joshua and the rest of the Israelites and you and me um, a great truth, a truth that we find again and again in Scripture. It's the power of God that brings the victory. John 15, verse 5, apart from him, we can do nothing. 
As Moses and Aaron and Hur held the staff up, as they looked to God to give the victory, as they supported one another and encouraged one another to keep looking to him and his strength, a marvelous thing happened. Verse 11, while Moses' hands with the staff were raised, down in the valley, the Israelites were winning. But whenever his hands with the staff were lowered, the Amalekites were winning. Now you can imagine the scene. How would you think Moses felt during all this? At the start, he probably didn't realize that the holding up of the staff, the acknowledgement of and the seeking of the power of God was so vital. But after a while, he probably began to notice a connection. As his hands drooped, the Amalekites began to win. And when he raised his hands again, the Israelites began to win. So I'm sure along the way, he learned this valuable truth. And the connection became crystal clear. Clear to Moses and clear to Aaron and clear to Hur and clear to the people who were battling down in the valley. So Moses, helped by Aaron and Hur, simply held up his hands, appealing to the power of God. And as we look at this passage, we can see the possibilities for us, for the future, if we do the same. You know, if we join hands and, and do this together, there's something about praying with others who really feel their need to pray who know their weakness and feel their desperate need of God, there's something about that that brings down the power of God. While Joshua and his men were required to fight, the victory was entirely dependent on God moving by his power in answer to intercessory prayer, prayer for others. The fighting goes on in the valley. Uh, you know, even today, uh, the daily battle against sin um, and the daily battle against the flesh, the daily effort to share the gospel. But there'll be no success, there'll be no ground taken unless the intervention of God is sought in prayer. Seeking God in intercessory prayer is hard work. Moses, his hands flagged, his hands drooped. He needed help from Aaron and her in order to keep at it. It was hard work, but it was vital work. What happens in the valley depends on what happens on the hill entirely. Do we really believe that prayer is vital because God's intervention and God's power is vital? Is there evidence in our lives that we believe that? Philip Ryken says this, it's, it's, it's a, a longish quote, but uh, this is what he says. What happens when we do not pray? It's very simple. We start losing the battle, even if we have put on the full armor of God. We may be wearing the belt of truth, the blessed breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. However, if we do not ask God through prayer to fight for us, we will not be able to make our stand against the devil. Instead, we will be led away from the truth into error, 
we will give in to temptation. We will be dragged down into doubt and discouragement. Both individually and corporately, the neglect of prayer means the loss of spiritual warfare. Even if we fight like Joshua, we will not win the battle unless we pray like Moses. So both individually and corporately, the neglect of prayer means the loss of spiritual warfare. Even if we fight like Joshua, we will not win the battle unless we pray like Moses. Hudson Taylor spoke the truth when he said, when we work, we work. When we pray, God works. We don't depend on prayer. We depend on God. Uh, In prayer, we connect with God, the one on whom we depend. And the power of God makes all the difference. That's why we need to pray. Verse 15, Moses built an altar and he called it, the Lord is my banner. He wanted to worship God for the victory that he'd brought about. Banner is a military term. The banner was something that the troops looked to for strength, something that the troops rallied around. Isaiah eleven ten says, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. The Lord is our banner. We rally to Jesus. We want to see his name lifted high. Because he was lifted high on the cross, crucified for our salvation and raised again to life. And when as believers we stand before God on that day, we won't be sorry we prayed. But I do suspect that we'll regret our prayerlessness. When we see just how much that God-given weapon of prayer could have been used in our hands to accomplish so much more by the power of God for the blessing of others and for the glory of God. It was a long battle here, verse 12, till sunset, until sunset. But God gave the victory. And you and I can play a part in that in the rest of 2021 and into 2022 bringing glory to God as we cry out to the living God in prayer uh, on behalf of the church of Jesus Christ, on behalf of the lost, for God to make the sword of the spirit hit the spot, to win the victory, to defeat evil, to deliver the people of God from every attack of the evil one. And as we do that, all the while remembering that victory comes not because of Moses' great praying or or Joshua's great fighting, but because of God's great power and blessing that's poured out in answer to prayer. So in closing, maybe this all seems a bit strange or a bit alien to you. Maybe you don't yet know Jesus as your saviour. Maybe um, you haven't rallied to him And if that's the case, he calls you to come to him today. He calls you to come to him as your saviour. Scripture says, today is the day of salvation. So turn from your sin. Turn from what you know to be wrong in your life. Turn to Jesus and trust that he paid your debt with his blood at the cross. 
Rally to the cross. Acknowledge not your own power or strength, but the Lord as your banner, as your savior, the one who gives you the victory. And then, as a child of God and as a soldier of Christ, take up the weapon of prayer and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And he'll add whatever else you need along the way uh, to the glory of his name. Amen.